If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to James chapter 4, verses 13, uh, through chapter 5, verse 6. Um, came to my mind earlier when I was doing the welcome, we were talking about praising God and, and giving Him the awe and reverence that, that He deserves. And I remember a conversation I had with a friend of mine who's a, he's a, he was a youth pastor at the time, and I was talking about a youth camp that he went to, and one of the, the people in the hallway he was at with this camp, this guy just went on this, uh, he had this devotional thought, I guess you could say. He wanted to share about using the word awesome, because we use that word so regularly in our conversation, like awesome, I'll see you there later, right? But this word, he said, should really just be reserved for God, and, and because of it, it, this word means awe, and it's insp inspiring awe within us, and so we use it too flippantly, he said. So we shouldn't use the word awesome unless we're really talking about something that's awesome, like God and his creation, and and so my, my friend was listening to this, and he was waiting, because and, and, there was other things they had to get through with their, their group, and he, and he got done. He said, all right, awesome, let's move on. And so <laughs> immediately just kind of uh, disregarded what had been said. But today's sermon, if you, if you see, is called, I don't have time for that, which it kind of was funny. Uh, there was two texts I got, like, right back to back. One was from Becky asking for the sermon text and title, and the next other one was from Becky to the, uh, the deacons about uh, the Lord's Supper preparations for today. And so I accidentally sent my response back in the Lord's Supper conversation right after, I think, uh, Mike had responded and said something about setting it up. And I said, I don't have time for that. And then sent the Bible verse. And so it sounded like I was giving, telling them I didn't have time for it. And this is my reasoning why. But we all feel that way, don't we? At some point in time, you feel like, I just don't have time for that. I don't have time for this to be happening. Um, so many times I've ask somebody the question, or I've been asked the question, how are you doing? And, and the answer is busy, right? Just a lot going on. I just have so much going on. And, and when I was thinking of this title, I mean, if you don't think of the, the meme that was pretty popular several years ago of, of, of the, the lady saying, I, ain't nobody got time for that, right? It comes from this news broadcast where they're asking her some question, and she says, I got bronchitis. Ain't nobody got time for that. And, and so it kind of became a meme people would use. And, but that's how we feel so often. We don't have time for what's going on. Um, we live in a go, go, go world, but we often have times making things fit into our schedule. But, but is that really true? Um, you know, I think just about every one of us finds time to eat every day, and, and sometimes I eat too much, eat, eat, find too much time to eat during the day, you know, and, and we have to work on that, but we always will make time for the things that matter. And, and so this passage, especially at first glance, looks like it's dealing with how you spend your time. It, it goes a little deeper than that, goes a little bit beyond that, um, but we're going to look at a few things based upon this scripture on what we do not have time to do. So, James chapter 4, verses 13 through James 5, verse 6. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So who, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and, your, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for your word this morning, just the ability we have to gather together to, to sing your praises, to look at your word. And Lord, I pray that right now as we turn your, our attention to the words that you have for us in James, Lord, I pray that you would uh, just open our hearts and remove all distractions so that we would look at what you say to us this morning. We would examine our hearts, examine our minds, or examine our lives and see whether or not we are living in accordance with your will or if we are doing what we would rather be doing. Lord, I pray that we would uh, be found faithful and if not, Lord, that we would Repent and follow you in faithfulness today. I pray that you'll be with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, you look at this passage and, and you look at... So last week I preached on two verses that kind of related to the, to the passage before. And today I'm preaching on two chapters, or going into two chapters, and somewhat they don't seem related. I promise you they are, and we'll get there in just a moment. But as we look at the first three verses, we're going to see that we don't, I don't have time for confidence in the temporary. That's the first point. I don't have time for confidence in the temporary. We're going to read verses 13 through 16 again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such, in such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil." So the first thing we see, come now, you who say. This is the impending audience of this section. So who is he talking to? Whoever says this, right? Come now, you who say. So the audience of this section is whoever says what follows. If you do say this, he's talking to you. If you don't say this, he's not, he's not talking to you. But you should still take heed of the warning that he's about to give. So what is it that they say? Who is the audience? Come now, you who say, tomorrow or today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So the people that say they're going to do something. Okay, that's probably all of us at some point in time. Hey, here's my plan. Today, tomorrow, I'm going to go here. I'm going to, I'm going to set up. We're going to do some business. We're going to make a profit. In this, we see the arrogance of tomorrow. There are so many things that we do in ways that we live where our ideas and understanding are based around what we will do tomorrow. You ever have that idea? Right? There's, there's almost kind of a joke about that. Our diet starts tomorrow. Well, what's the good, what's the good thing about that? Tomorrow never comes, right? It's always tomorrow. So when it, when it is tomorrow, it can start tomorrow, right? There's this, this idea, this elusiveness of what is to come in the future, and despite our knowledge of how temporary this life is, we tend to plan as though we will live forever. So what is our purpose in doing this? Why do we plan as though we're going to live forever? We, we want to work now so that in the future things will be better. We want to have a better life in the future so we, we neglect and we don't do things now, right? In some ways there's some wisdom in doing this, but in some ways there's some foolishness as we see here. Right? There's this, this movement of uh, FIRE. I don't know if you've ever heard it. It's the acronym. It's Financially Independent Retired Early. It's all about doing things, denying yourself, and, and, and accruing a lot of wealth so that you can live the rest of your life. And then we're talking when I say early, like 30 or, or in, the, in their 30s, retiring, living their life in, 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 in ease. Why do we do this? Why do we plan 
for the future and neglect what's happening right now. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about neglecting what's happening now and planning for the future, storing things up, setting our own plans. And, and there's an illustration. Francis Chan used it, but I decided to actually bring it. I've referenced it before, but I think it's better when you can see it. So I want you to imagine that this string represents our lives, just this length of the string right now. And so what we do in this life so often is that we take parts of this life, right? I'm, I'm going to, okay, so this part of your life, you're a kid, so we'll take that out. And then you're an adult, so I'm going to work and work and work and work so that when I have this much of my life left, I can really enjoy it. But here's the thing that he's saying. What is your life? You don't know what tomorrow will bring. So we think our life, right, the average life, if this is representing the 86 or whatever it is, average lifespan of an American, we don't know if it ends tomorrow. We don't know if it ends tomorrow. We don't know what our life holds. And so why are we planning and planning for the future in such a way where everything we do is built around the future and what we want to do in the future? That's the key part. We'll get to that in a moment. What we want to do in the future, especially when we consider that this life is not all there is. No matter what, whether we love God and we know Him, we have a relationship with Jesus, whether we don't love God and we don't have a relationship with Him, we, have, we will live eternally. And that will be with God forever in heaven or separated from Him. And so this life, what we do here, determines the rest of how we live. And it didn't go as far as I wanted it. But you understand that every... Just imagine it goes on forever. Everything we do here, whether what we do with Jesus, how we live for God, that's the only time we have to be obedient to God, to, to serve Him in this life, in this world. And so when we plan for later days and neglect obedience now, that's a problem. When we plan on our own knowledge, that's what we see here. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that, dis that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We have no understanding or expectation of what tomorrow holds. Our life is a vapor. And the word for this, really the best example of this, a vapor. We think about that, we think of or a mist, we think of water, mist, or vapor. But think about when you blow out a candle. What do you see for a moment? A little bit of smoke. Does it stay there very long? No. And, and to carry the illustration a little further, you might smell the smoke for a little bit longer. It might have some after effects. But it's there and then it's not. And that is what our life is. Do you know how many people have lived and gone before us that made plans and had plans and we don't know who they are? We don't know their names. We don't see any effect of them today. We're people. Our life is a vapor. It's a mist. It's here today and, it's, and it vanishes. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We cannot have expectations of permanence in this life. We are all painfully aware of the temporary nature of this life. We've all seen or experienced the loss of life of someone we loved or knew that ended what we would say too soon. We know life is temporary. But for some reason, we still don't live our lives with this understanding. We live our lives based upon what will come tomorrow. So often we, we plan for better days ahead and we plan on our own understanding. We know that today could be our last day and the way that we live should reflect this. 
So what is the sinful part of this equation? Because he's rebuking these people. What's the sinful part? Is it simply living with planning? Is, that, is, that, is, plan, is having a retirement account sinful? Well, when you first read this, at first glance, that could be almost like you should live for today, you shouldn't plan for tomorrow. That's not exactly what it's saying. Retirement, saving for a house, saving for a car, that's not what it's saying. What is the problem here? So he says, come now you who say, today we're going to go to such a town, we're going to make a profit. He says, you don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what your life brings. Okay, so it's talking about planning for tomorrow. That there's, we need to be aware of that. But what is the problem? Instead, you should say, so here's what we see. The rebuke of the problem, the issue, what's, what they're saying is wrong follows. If you compare these two, two statements, what's the difference? The difference shows where the sin is. Instead, you should say, he addresses the one who says the thing and tells them what they should say instead. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Okay. So the problem wasn't the plan. The problem was not planning to go and do a thing. It wasn't a, it wasn't a problem to go and to, to do something in the future. Now, we should still be aware of how short our life is, how how, how we live impacts eternity, how what we're doing should matter because we don't know what tomorrow holds. We should take those things in mind. But the problem is our arrogance of tomorrow, our arrogance of what our future holds. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So the difference, today or tomorrow, we're going to do this. If the Lord wills, we will do this. So what's the difference? Who is in control in these two scenarios? In the first one, it's us. I am establishing, I am planning that I'm going to go do this. This is my plan, this is what I'm going to do. It's a little silly, isn't it? When you don't know what tomorrow holds, you can't see tomorrow, you don't know what the future holds, if the Lord wills. Who has the authority that we submit to in that? We've talked about this, submitting, humbling ourselves before God. This is how we submit our every day to Him. If the Lord wills, this is my plan for my life. So what does that also say? What did Jesus say in the garden? Not my will, but your will be done. So if it's not the Lord's will, what are you saying? I'm okay that this doesn't happen if it's not the Lord's will. If the Lord wills, I'm going to do this. The primary issue at hand is the confidence we put in ourselves and in this life and in what comes tomorrow. Because if you establish plans, if you plan to do everything and it doesn't happen, what do you usually feel? Frustrated. I plan to do this. I wanted this to happen. And for some reason or another, it was taken away from me. If we submit it to God, if the Lord wills, and it doesn't happen, what do we know? That wasn't what God intended for me to do right now. This was not the Lord's will. Because we have already changed our mindset to the things we do. It's not things we do for ourselves and for our benefit and our gain. It's things we do in submission to God and following Him and obeying Him. Are we establishing what will happen do we have the ability to control what will happen today or tomorrow or in the next year? We don't. But the Lord does. So we should submit ourselves to Him. We should seek to obediently submit to God's leading in our life. And so when we say this, and, and what we take from this, is we should remember to say, if the Lord wills, before anything we intend. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to be legalistic here and, and say that every conversation you have has to have, if the Lord wills, in it. But the attitude of your heart needs to first and foremost be, if the Lord wills, right? You could, you could say, hey, I, I think we're going to go here to eat after church. 
It's not, that's not a sin. It is a sin if, if you're not submitting to the Lord's will on that. Okay, you don't have to say, if the Lord wills, we're going here. Your attitude, your heart should be that. You should remember and know that the Lord's will is what you're following. And if it changes, if it becomes apparent to do something different, you change with it. It's an act of submission and humility to God. It acknowledges His sovereignty, His control of this life and our dependence upon Him. It acknowledges our understanding that this life is temporary and we will not live forever. So here's the other thing. We should be able to say, if the Lord wills, about any of our plans. Catch that. If we should be able to say, if the Lord wills, about any of our plans. When we do this, we see if our plans are compatible with God's will for our lives. If the Lord wills, I will live selfishly. Does not really flow very well. If the Lord wills, we're going to go rob this bank later. Do you see the irony? Do you see the, in that statement, you realize that is not the Lord's will? Because you're breaking the Lord's commands. And so all of our plans should be able to be prefaced with, if the Lord wills. Everything you do, if the Lord wills, I'm gonna, going to live my life in this certain way. And if you see in your life and in that plan that you've established that the Lord's will doesn't really line up with that, what needs to change? Your plans. Because you're submitting yourself to the Lord's will in your life. Taking the time to acknowledge our submission to God's will will help us to evaluate if what we're doing is in line with God's will for our life. And this also gives us the opportunity to change course when things are not in line with God's will. So an example of this in my life. Okay, I was, in 2021, uh, I was thinking about where my life was headed and in the future of my life. It was June and, uh, you know, COVID's going on. Interest rates got really low for a period of time. And so I was like, you know what would be a really smart thing for me to do financially for our family is to refinance our house. We can refinance our house, get a much lower interest rate. We even were able to switch from a 30-year to a 15-year and barely have a payment increase. This is great financially. That was my plan. Do you know what God called me to do a month later? Very clearly, you need to begin to look to be a senior pastor. Well, this sure would have been nice to know a month ago when I, before I refinanced my house. Now, luckily... It, it wasn't traumatic to us or anything financially, but if I had evaluated everything I did in that situation, is this the Lord's will rather than is this a wise scheme to save some money in the future, I might have realized, oh, maybe God is calling me to do something different. Maybe God is calling me to a new place of service in, in my life. So when we do that, we don't bear the pain of our way not going the way it should go because if we seek God's will, now not always, Sometimes you'll still make mistakes, but you're saying, if it's the Lord's will, this is what I'm going to do. And then you realize it wasn't the Lord's will. And you can move on in peace, knowing you're in His will. As it is, so he's talking back to them the way they talked before. They're saying, we're going to go do this. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So the, the problem is that they are boasting about what they're going to do, to do tomorrow when they can't control a single thing. They can't control what happens tomorrow. They can't control what happens in their life. All such boasting is evil. So when we pay, place too much confidence in our own life and in ourself, we're boasting in arrogance. And that boasting, the Bible says, is evil. When we place too much stock in our own authority, our own confidence, our own life, 
We are boasting arrogantly, and that is evil. An attitude that ignores the sovereignty of God and relies on our own plans is evil. So when we read Scripture, we pay attention to transitional words. The next word that comes in is so, right? So is a transitional word. We're seeing that everything that came before that leads into what comes after. So what comes next? I don't have time to ignore God's commands. Verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So what does this mean? What does it mean? So for him, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. Well, it's a pretty general thing, but applying to this passage, uh, we're going to see how this comes in. Most often we think about sin as things we should not do, right? The definition that we use very often with kids is anything, sin is anything we think, say, or do that goes against God's law. Anything we think, say, or do that goes against God's law. And most often we think about this in terms of what not to do. Don't break the law. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this, right? These are sins of commission, things that you do. Commit, you committed a sin, right? You go and you, you, you say something evil, like we talked about previously. You say something evil about someone, you have committed a sin because of what you have done. You have broken God's law. God says don't murder, and you murder. You've broken God's law. It's a sin of commission. You committed an offense against God's law. People are very aware of these kinds of sins. People say, I just try to live a, a good life and avoid the big sins, right? You ever heard someone say that to you? I've heard that many times. Well, I, you know what? I mean, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I just try to live a good life and avoid the big sins. And I would say the majority of people that would say they're religious would probably try to operate that way. I try to just, you know, the Ten Commandments, I try just to not to do those things. I try not to break those laws. And when we describe the morality of a person, how, often do, how do we do it most often? You know, they're a pretty good person. They don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't do drugs, they don't steal. We talk about what they don't do most often. But what they, what they don't do, but what they do is just as important. Sins of omission. These are the things that we omit from our lives. Things that we're commanded to do, but we don't do them. They're not as apparent, right? If, if no one but you knows that God's calling you to follow Him in this step of obedience... Who knows that you're sinning? Not anybody around you. If, if, if a person were called to be a missionary, they were called to leave this place to go overseas, and they knew it. They knew that God was calling them to do this stuff, to follow Him in obedience, and they didn't do it. What does this passage say? For him who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin. But who knows that? If, you, if we all leave this place and we don't go and we don't do the thing God calls us to do, right? Who's going to know it? The people may be watching you, but who's watching you all the time? Not everybody. And it, it's funny, when we think of the two things, the two greatest commands, they are sins, they are, they, are, they are commands that are given to us as things we should do. Right? What a, the greatest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is something you actively do. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is something you actively do. Now, in that, in loving your neighbor, that means you're not going to murder him. So don't do that. But you love your neighbor, right? The, we see this in the parable of the Good Samaritan. What does it mean? to Who is my neighbor? You love him by acting out to do, for doing things, for, for showing this love. We see the parable of the talents. 
where they're given this money to invest and the guy just buries it. Did he lose? He didn't lose the money. Don't lose the money. Didn't do that. You're supposed to invest the money. Didn't do that. Because you didn't do this, because you failed to be obedient where you knew you were supposed to do something. Right? You get just as mad at people in your life or just as frustrated with them when they don't do things you expect them to do. You come home and, and, and you've told your child, hey, mow the yard. You get home, the yard's not mowed. Well, I didn't burn down the house. That's not, I told you to mow, you didn't mow the yard and you were supposed to. It's not what they did, it's what they didn't do. So this is what this passage is saying. Right? Think about Matthew 25, 44 through 45. Then they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will say to them, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. The condemnation for these people in this passage is what they didn't do for those that they knew they should be serving. When we see what we need to do, we need to do it. It's very simple, right? But it's very difficult. Following in obedience, submitting our lives to Him, doing what we ought to do even when it's hard is very difficult at times. But that's what we're called to do. Sometimes the simplest things in life that we face can be the most difficult to actually do. So then we move to the next portion of this passage. And this is the one that seems like it doesn't really connect, but it does. I don't have time to live luxuriously. I don't have time to live luxuriously. Verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming on you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud and are, and are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Come now. How did the, how did the last passage, we, we, the first part of this passage we read start? Come now, you who say. Come now, you rich. We also see this, this evidence of the last days, of the time being short, of planning and, and, and for the future. So come now. This connects to the passage at the beginning. You rich. What is this talking about? Who is the rich person that James is addressing here? Most specifically, he is talking, he has a very specific group of people in mind that he is talking to in his time. Rich landowners. People that are very wealthy and have power and authority of many people. As this pastor talks about, we talk about the people who mowed their fields, who kept back their wages through fraud. We see that he is talking to a specific group of people that are doing specific things. But we also see it's related to those who are greedy and abuse others to gain and maintain their wealth. So today, we have to figure out, he's talking to the specific group of people in his mind. We have to figure out, does our life, does the way we live our life, the way that we deal with money, wealth, the way we deal with people that we have authority over, does it line up with this? If it does, these words apply very directly to us. If it doesn't, it's a warning of how not to live our life. We should act accordingly and repent if we see anything from us in this passage. He says to weep and howl. Come you rich, weep and howl. These words are directly invocative of the Old Testament prophets and how they were describing the day of the Lord. 
the judgment that was to come, of weeping and howling, of the terror, right? We hear the words, the fear of the Lord. That's why there is fear of the Lord, because you know what He could do. You know that if you were lost in your sin, what would happen? That's why you have fear of the Lord, because you respect Him. You understand what He could do. So weep and howl. They're standing in judgment and condemned because of the way they live their life. And we will see what, why and what awaits them. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Okay, so I want us to look at this again. Your, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. Eat your flesh like fire. Is this something talking about what is to come? In my mind, when I first read this, I, I feel like I'm, I, I first thought it was talking about what is to come. So they're going to weep and howl, and all these things are going to happen to their riches. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying it presently. They have rotted. They are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Why? What does this mean? I want you to think, when does rotting and corrosion happen? When does rotting and corrosion happen? When things sit idle. They sit for a long time, and they stay. I have two examples I want to share with you. My grandfather, when I was probably 10 or 12 years old, somewhere in that time range, he brought out a basketball that, that he had played with when he was a child, when he was younger. It was beautiful. You know, it, just, it was so different than modern basketballs, and it, it, but it looked brand new almost. And so I took it into their wood floor in their, in their kitchen, and I went to bounce it. <laughs> Did not bounce back up, even though it was very firm. Why? It was dry-rotted. It, what was once able to be used for something, had sat for so long and dry-rotted and it was unusable. In the same way, many people like to collect things. One big item that's very popular nowadays people spend way too much money on is shoes. Some people collect, especially basketball shoes, from certain time periods and they keep them from long periods of time. There are some shoes from the 90s that are worth a lot of money that if you touch the midsole, they crumble immediately upon touching them because they have rotted. And if you had worn those shoes, they would have worked out better. You think about a tire, you think of a tire that has all the treads still, but it, the car sat for so long in a dry rod, you can't use them. So we think about these people's wealth that they have. Their, their, their wealth has rotted, their, their clothes are moth-eaten, their gold and silver is corroded. What does it mean? It's sat idle. They've hoarded wealth for themselves, placed it in a, in a place where no one can get it. So much wealth they didn't even need to use it. And they didn't use it. Because a coin that gets used every single day, it's going to be shiny. A coin that sits is when it corrodes. So the wealth of these people, the wealth that's indicting them is because it is sat idly by. While what is happening? While those that mow their fields are defrauded of their pay. So it's not only that they have great wealth that they don't use for the benefit of anyone, not even themselves, it's that they gained it through greed and evil doing. This indictment leads, this, this leads to their indictment. Storing up treasure in the last days. Instead of storing this treasure up, it should have been used for good. You know, I want you to think about that. How many times, have you, has it ever happened to you? It's very sad when it does. Where you go somewhere and you, you think you're so hungry, you order so much food, and then you realize after you take a few bites, maybe you ate too much chips at the Mexican restaurant. And then you get your food comes, you just can't even eat it. And so what you do is you put it in a box and you take it with you. But you leave it out in the car for too long. 
and it goes bad. It's not useful anymore. This is the same kind of idea of storing up treasure when it's not useful tomorrow because the Lord is coming back. You've stored up treasure in the last days. I want you to understand a lot of the New Testament authors, they, they were told by Jesus that He is coming soon. They took this to mean most likely within their lifetime. James is waiting for any moment for the, the skies to open and Jesus come down. But he didn't tell them a day. He says no one knows the day. But he thought they would return in their lifetimes. We don't know the day or the hour he will return, but we do know two things. It will be soon. Now, we understand God's soon is not the same as our soon. To, I think it's in Peter, in one of the, the letters from Peter, it says a day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So if, if we're going by the second one, it's only been two years or two days, and that's, that's not very soon, you know. My vacation's coming up soon. It's a couple months away. But we know it will be soon, and every day we are a little bit closer. Today we are closer to the Lord's return than we were yesterday, and tomorrow we will be closer to the Lord's return than we are today. And we should live accordingly. We should live our lives as though Jesus is coming back soon. I want to ask you this. How would you live if you knew today that Jesus is coming back tomorrow? If all of a sudden we just heard a loud voice from heaven, I'm coming back tomorrow, get your affairs in order. What would you do today? You going to go take a nap after church? You're going to go uh, just prepare. You're going to go check your retirement account that you can't withdraw from a couple, for a couple years. What are you going to do? I would hope share the gospel. I would hope repent and, and try to line your life up with what he's doing. What if you knew he was coming back a month from now? Okay, you've got a little more time to do the things you should do that maybe you haven't been doing. You've got a little bit more time to be obedient to share with the people that you know are lost. A year from now, five years from now, 20 years. Well, if you knew when he was coming, how would you live? Here's the thing, we know he's coming back, but we don't know when. It could be tomorrow. It could be today. It could be a month, a year. But what we do know, even if he doesn't come back in our lifetimes, we will all stand before him and give account for the way we lived our lives. This is why these people should be in fear. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud or crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is why they stand condemned. They are abusing those who work. Not only are they storing up these riches, not sharing them, not only are they ignoring the authority of the Lord and, and the judgment that is to come, they're abusing those who work for them, taking advantage of others. It's a warning to consider how we are living and whether the way we interact with others is glorifying to God. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You know, the world tries to sell us luxury. Right? This whole point is I don't have time to live luxuriously. It tries to sell us luxury, indulgence, right? Indulging what we want to do. This section is a rebuke on those who live a life of luxury and abuse others. There was a, a Preacher, pastor, whatever you want to call him, John Chris Austin. He was born in the mid 300s, and I said 300s, so very close to Jesus. Um, Chris Austin was not his actual last name; it was a name given to him, which means golden mouthed. He was kind of the first famous preacher because his preaching was so good that they called him golden mouthed. And he lived a very ascetic lifestyle. And what that means is he lived a very impoverished lifestyle on purpose. Okay. Uh, so he became the bishop of Constantinople, which was one of the premier places to be. Do you know what he did? 
sold almost everything out of the, the bishop's palace so that he could uh, feed the poor. Okay? He opened a hospital for the sick and the needy. He preached constantly against luxury and wealth, and not just against the concept, against the people who lived in luxury and wealth. He died for that reason. The empress that he preached against often because of the way that she lived her life um, killed him because of what he was preaching. So he was preaching on a passage from Deuteronomy 8, 10 through 14. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built houses, good houses, and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So this is an excerpt from one of his sermons that he, he gave on this passage. In this way, luxury often leads to forgetfulness. As for you, my beloved, if you sit at a table, if you sit at table, remember that from the table you must go to prayer. Fill your belly so moderately that you may not become too heavy to bend your knees and call upon your God. So what is he saying here? What is he saying in this passage? After Thanksgiving, I want you to think about that. After we have Thanksgiving meal, you ever have that feeling where all you want to do is go lay down and sleep and do nothing else? And we can blame it on what's in the turkey, but we all know it's because we ate way too much of the turkey, right? If you eat a little tiny turkey sandwich, you're going to be okay. After we have Thanksgiving or Christmas or any of these meals, we're so full that all we can do is go lay down and sleep. That's what he's saying here. Taste and see that the Lord is good, but don't enjoy the goodness that he gives you so much that you forget how good he is or that you forget that he's the one that gave it to you. He's saying don't overindulge in, your, in, in the eating, and I think they're more specifically probably talking about the Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake in soon. The way they would eat it was more of as a, as a feast. Don't partake so much that you can't leave and then go to prayer. And in Deuteronomy, don't enjoy the Lord's blessing so much that you forget He's the one that gave it to you. Luxury, goodness, all these things that, are, that can make cloud our minds tends to lead us to forget. What did Jesus say? It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Our riches and our luxury tend to f make us forget what God has done for us. We have to be careful of that. It's not impossible. It doesn't mean if you have money that, you, that God doesn't love you. But we have to be careful that the things we enjoy, the blessings He gives, don't lead us astray. Don't lead us to forget all that He's done for us. And here is a very indicting, the next next part of this passage. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You've fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. What does this mean? The rich are ignoring the situation that they're in. The rich in this passage. So before an animal is slaughtered for meat, what do they do to it? Fatten it up. So it's going to be good. It's going to give you the right amount of meat. It's going to be good and useful. They fatten it up so it'll be ready for slaughter. When, when the prodigal son comes home, what animal do they bring? Bring the skinny calf. No, bring the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate. So the rich are ignoring their situation, ignoring the impending judgment. They, they've been warned. They know what's coming. They know the judgment that is to come and the guilt that they imply, that is, is on them. 
And it says they are fattening their hearts before the slaughter, before the, in the day of slaughter. They are increasing their sin before the judgment. Judgment is coming for these people. He has said, weep and howl because of what's coming to you, because of all these things. And you are fattening your heart in a day of slaughter. You are increasing your sin. God's going to judge you, and you're continuing to increase the sin within your life. He has this much against you, and you're increasing the sin in your life before he judges you. What should we do instead when we realize the sin we have? We should, they should repent and turn to God. That should, that's what I believe James's intention is here, is that they'll hear this and repent and turn to God. This is an example of what not to do and how not to live. We cannot keep living ignoring the coming of Christ in the day we stand before the throne. Whether that's in the, the arrogance we have about tomorrow, or the things we know we should do, or whether it's living lost in the luxury that we might find ourselves in this life. Because all this, the, the one thing that all of us have is I don't have time to not be obedient to the Lord. You don't have time to not be obedient to the Lord. And so as we come to this time of invitation, what I want to invite you to do is to examine your heart. What do you need to do today? Do you need to submit to God's sovereignty and authority in your life to realize He is in control? To whether it's literally or figuratively say, if the Lord wills. To, to check all of your plans, all the things you've established and, and say, is this the Lord's will? Is this what God wants me to do in my life? Do you need to be obedient in doing what God calls you to do? Do you know how many people fight God's calling on their life for so, much, so, many, so many years? I know many pastors that said, I knew when I was very young that God was calling me into ministry, but I didn't listen. What, what is God calling you to do that maybe you're not listening about? To serve here in some way, to, to serve in some way, to, to give in some way, to, to, to love some certain person in a certain way. Because what this passage tells us is, for him who knows what to do and doesn't do it, it's sin. What is God calling you to do today where you need to submit in obedience? Where do you need to repent of luxurious living in the last days? Of storing up what should be poured out on others? And again, I want you to understand, this doesn't mean you can't save to some extent. I mean, having, I think, an emergency fund and, and saving for the future is, is wise. If you realize that one day you won't be able to work and you don't want to be a burden to others, it's not, it's not wrong as long as you say, if the Lord wills, this is what I'm going to do. And if it becomes clear that the Lord would have you do something else, will you be faithful? So what is God calling you today to do today? Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior? Or, or are you like the rich man, whether it's because of your wealth and the way you're living, or it's your other sin in your life? Do you stand condemned before Him? Are you fattening your heart in a day of slaughter of the sin that you keep accumulating and not being concerned with? Today is the day, because we don't know what tomorrow holds, today is the day to turn to Him in repentance and ask for forgiveness to make Him your Lord and your Savior. Whatever you need to do today, as Becky comes and we have this time of invitation, I want to challenge you to do it. Because if we know it, we ought to be faithful in doing it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer today. Father, I thank you 
for this time that we've had to look at your word and this time we have to, to be together, to worship you, to, to see what you've called us to do. And God, I pray that as we have this time of invitation, that you would be here with us, that you would help us just to seek you and to know you. I pray that you would help us to see where you're leading us and that we would be obedient, that you would show us what we need to do and that we would know what to do and that we would be obedient in doing it. I pray that if there's anyone that does not know you this morning, that today would be the day they would submit to you in salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.